0: Welcome to the founders of Web3 series, by Live Ventures, and me, your host, Jamie Burke. Together, we're gonna to meet the entrepreneurs, their backers, and the leading policymakers that are shaping Web3. Together, we're gonna to try to define what is Web3, explore its nuances, and understand the mission and purpose that drive its founders. If you enjoy what you hear, please do subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission that is Web3. Great. So today, I'm happy to welcome on David Rutter, founder of R3, a consortium formed officially, I think it says, in 2015. And one of the first initiatives in the blockchain space to create real enterprise traction and momentum. And I remember R3 was coming online just as I was entering um, the space and, and setting up outlier. And every week there was an announcement that a new bank was coming on on board, and it drove huge interest uh, in the space. Certainly helped me when I was raising capital, and I'm sure it helped uh, a large number of other startups. So thanks, David, for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So as I understand it, you're now 300-plus member organizations in both a mix of public and private, and you are kind of circa 250, 300 staff now split between London, New York and, and some in Singapore. Is that a, a good summary? Yeah, it's a pretty good summary. I think the headcount is
1: around 320 at the moment and yes, our biggest office is in London. I found, I'm an American. I founded the company in New York and then uh, moved to London about three and a half years ago. We also have a big presence in Singapore but we have a Reasonable size office in São Paulo and one in Mumbai, uh, a couple people, two, three people in Sydney, and spread throughout. We've got a guy in Germany and the like. Yes, yeah, so we've got a we've got a pretty good pretty good spread. One of the things, Jamie, that we had to adjust to early on was, for a startup, it quickly became, you know, a very global business in part because of uh, the interest from banks were kind of our initial investors and we've moved beyond that now but they were you know very globally spread so we had to we had to expand uh and that drove part of our strategy
0: early on yeah and i think this is one of the things i was really looking forward to having you on for because there are lots of startups in the space but there are very few scale-ups that have achieved meaningful scale and, and you guys certainly are one of them and i would argue have achieved scale in probably some of the hardest segments you know dealing with the financial services sector and incumbents that can generally be uh, slow to adopt new technologies so that, that kind of startup and scale-up phase journey as an entrepreneur I think is something that I really want to jump into and as I was saying to you off-air before we started the podcast back when uh, you could do conferences last year, I was increasingly hearing from people working in enterprise that um, Corda, which is the technology stack that you developed uh, at R3 and open sourced very early on, is becoming de facto enterprise blockchain, uh, especially within financial services, but increasingly in other use cases. And so I remember, I can't remember the exact year, but I saw you and your co-founder, Todd McDonald, who I believe is working on product now. I I want to guess it's something like 2014, but uh, I know it says you officially formed the consortium in 2015. But I'm pretty sure uh, it was a little bit earlier and I saw you at a, a Bitcoin meetup in London. I think it was the only one in the UK, possibly Europe at the time. A room full of about 10-15 people. I remember you guys came, I believe you were wearing a suit, and it was at, at total odds with, with with the room. And uh, everyone looked very confused about, you know, the use case, remembering at that point. <laughs> suit. That's where they were confused about. Yeah, and um, it was at total odds with the community at that, at that time. You know, the, the people that were interested in this space were typically um, technologists, they were very libertarian um and they didn't really have very much commercial experience that's certainly how i found it when i entered the space so it was really interesting that that kind of memory really stood out and then it was, it was really interesting to watch how you very quickly became to dominate headlines um uh, around around blockchain yeah
1: so i mean you, you've touched on so many things there jamie i don't really know where to start but the bitcoin meetup that you referred to i believe was the only one I ever went to. I had (laughs) a similar shocking experience uh, around the same time doing a tour of Silicon Valley, visiting a bunch of startups. I forget the uh, private equity guy and this boom. um, I forget exactly, but they had all these startups that were using this thing called Bitcoin. And within six months, they were gonna, you know, displace DTCC and JP Morgan is gonna be threatened and all this other sort of stuff. And what I found interesting was the friction or the dichotomy between the fact that a lot of these uh, youngsters that I was meeting were very well educated, Stanford, MIT, some of the best schools uh, that wanted to use this new technology but really didn't understand how the banking system worked or what DTCC did. And it was, it was really, for someone that had been around for so many years, and I think, you know, my roots are uh, through Wall Street. I was in the derivatives markets, money markets, and securities markets. I'm a registered seven twenty four sixty three, 63, you know, ex-security guy. So I understand uh, the inner workings of those institutions very well. And it just drove me crazy. Todd was kind of much more open-minded about, uh, you know, Bitcoin and some of the other things. Ethereum was, I think, just getting kind of started then. And I, from the very start, recognized the beauty of certain attributes and the power of, you know, using cryptology and distributed computing computing to solve industry problems, which previously couldn't be solved because of concerns about customer lists being exposed and my competitive edge being lost. So from the very start, I looked at this extremely differently. And as you know, uh, we cut a path uh, with some brilliant minds, Richard Gendel Brown, uh, Mike Kern, Todd, myself, James Carlisle was in there early and other other folks. But from the very start, we said, you know, we wanted to solve real world problems. And even now, when I listen to, you know, I was, I'm on a uh, Singapore. um, The MAS has what's called an ITAP, uh, International Technology Advisory Panel. And Lubin just joined last year. I've been part of it for three or four years now and you know, he presented as as recently as November and I like Joe and I admire a lot of the things he's trying to do but I listened to him and there's a substantial part of what he's saying that just doesn't resonate with me I don't understand it and I felt very much that way then so we we you know took some risks and blazed a path that was very different than our competitors and uh it's amazing for me to hear you say what you said earlier about how we're becoming the default for enterprise. Um, and if that's, that's true, that would be incredible. We still have a lot to do uh, to improve, to harden our platform, um, to help our partners deploy apps uh, more quickly. But I think that some of the decisions we made pretty early on were very prescient and are paying dividends for us now then I'll say one other thing and I'll stop and see what part of that, because that openings are Jamie, we could talk about for several hours, but things about like how we achieve scale uh, and the like, a lot of this the stuff was based on the experiences that all of us had in our, in our careers. And I've, you know, run some, a number of different companies, including some electronic exchanges. So I had both an appreciation for uh, how powerful electronic uh, transformation, digital transformation can be, but also how difficult it is, how long it can take. Uh, and I also have been involved in a number of startups uh, as an investor an advisor and a board member I also know the dangers of startups, which is you're a product company until you aren't. It's like, you know, in, in, until you don't hit your numbers and then you offer bespoke solutions and you lose your, your, your path and all. So I was very determined based on those experiences to take R3 in a, in a specific direction. And so far it's working out pretty well. And just one more comment about scale. Um, because we had to be global very quickly, it's one of the reasons I moved to London you know, very early on, we had projects going on in Singapore and in Thailand and parts of Eastern Europe. It was in, in Brazil. And so in order to meet that demand, I knew that we couldn't do it. So we made this platform decision to build Corda and to really rely on a partner ecosystem to deploy customer applications. And you know a lot of those decisions, and there are many more that have really positioned us well. Uh, to achieve the type of growth that we've achieved over the last four years.
0: Yeah, and I think it's interesting, you know, when you talk about the different pathways that were presented and that others have forged. And I know um, you've had very strong opinions on Libra's approach um, and what they've got wrong. And I think, you know, to, to quote you, they've shown like a lack of understanding and they've been naive. And I think when you look at your background, and so maybe just for the for the sake of the listener to kind of build, build on some of that, you know, you've got a few decades in uh, working in the implementation of technologies, innovations, as you said, primarily around electronic trading. Uh, and I think you've referred to it as uh, you think that blockchain could be as big as electrification was. Um, to the financial services industry, um, but throughout that journey, whether it's um, being a CEO of a division at ICAP, which was the world's largest interdealer uh, setup, or um, Liquidity Edge, um, which was a startup you founded, uh, looking at bespoke trade building uh, bespoke trading ecosystems, throughout that you've had to engage with the financial services industry as it as it was. Um, I know you've done some work in emerging markets where it's perhaps a little bit more greenfield, Um, but you've had to engage with stakeholders, including Bank of England, Bank of Japan, Fed, Swiss National Bank, throughout that. So um, I guess just probably some exposure therapy. You you have an appreciation for the stakeholders involved um, in a way that people outside of this space don't have an appreciation for Um, and I I guess you know for me the the big question is why you decided. and they mentioned this this kind of partner ecosystem uh, but why the hell you decided to create a banking consortium for blockchain because I'll be honest with you it um, that sounds like an unenviable role Um, and I'm sure most people on the outside probably myself included when it first began were were skeptical that it, it could be pulled off. Now, of course, it, it wasn't without its, its challenges um, throughout that process. But there were kind of two key decisions as I see it. The first one was to, to very early go with this consortia approach. And then the decision to pivot from, if you would describe it as a pivot, from uh, procuring blockchain startups with third parties to building Corda and open sourcing it so i don't know if you could talk us through um that that process and that decisioning. okay so the building of the consortium so
1: you know we decided early on that as i mentioned and no one articulates this better than uh richard brown is that we wanted to use this technology to really solve problems at an industry level, so what do I mean by that? What I mean is that there is an incredible amount of cost it doesn 't matter whether you 're in medical supplies or finance or whatever. I just happen to know the financial services industry very well there 's all of these middle and back office operational services that are non differentiating non proprietary don 't distinguish you between you know morgan stanley's you know processing of securities or or clearing and clearing operations don't doesn't drive customer demand to morgan stanley versus goldman sachs and a lot of these um a lot of these services can be uh, that the cost can be shared and serviced at an industry level so since since we wanted to take a different approach it was clear to us very early on that we wanted to um, to bring in a a variety of industry players, um, the banks and the customers in financial services are the toughest customers out there. If you're going to build an enterprise solution, I mean, maybe maybe NASA and and, and uh, you know some some medical organizations have higher standards, but since they deal with billions of dollars of other people's money. Um, every day, the the demands are very, very high. So we knew that if we could build solutions that would uh, pass these stringent requirements for the largest banks in the world, they would um, work well in other industries and we're already seeing that. So, um, so we went that path. As far as building a consortium with, I forget, 42 banks, Ultimately, our series A, it's been reported as 107, I think it was 120 million, you know, one of the largest ever, Um, maybe 40 some banks involved and some other investors. I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. You know, I'd rather (laughs) probably have you rip my fingernails off than have me go through that 18 month process again. Um, But I had, it was the fifth time I had been involved in that. So I was very careful in the way the operating agreement was crafted to give the appropriate balance and to allow us to do what we have done, which I think is underappreciated in some ways. We very accurately started as a consortium, but we are now an enterprise software company. Um, you know, I'm the largest shareholder. The banks are an important part of our shareholder group, but we have, have a, a number of other shareholders, including, Uh, A large number of employee shareholders. So it created an opportunity for me to raise a very significant amount of money for me to get industry buy-in and to try to drive what I thought was some necessary sanity in those early days. I don't do particularly well when I hear, you know, dreamy, unsubstantiated claims about what uh, these technologies are going to do. I think that what happened has happened in this ICO and token world is one of the greatest frauds that I've witnessed since I've I've been around. And you know, I've I've been outspoken about this. It doesn't mean I don't respect the ingenuity of some of it, but we have always resisted the get rich quick um you know schemes. Never considered an ICO. And you know, we've always thought about playing the long game and adding uh, substantial and sustainable value for our customers. So it's it's been hard um, and we need to be a lot better than we are, but we've done a pretty good job in that regard.
0: So I mean, I think the that, that 18-month period is, is, a, is a really interesting moment to understand as an entrepreneur in that the first thing you have to overcome is this inertia. So I mean, clearly your credibility in the space would have helped open doors but still at, at that point um it, it didn't feel like there were many people um, you know cl- clamoring to be involved in in in, in blockchain maybe i would describe it as cu- curiosity and um, so how did you break that inertia in an enterprise context and then um, the momentum at least looking from the outside um, seemed incredible and i don't know uh, whether you would put that down to something that you did really well, or it was kind of just this fear of missing out that caused this stampede um, uh, to, to, to kind of get involved in the consortium. So, so the FOMO was a second order effect, but to
1: get the first, you know, 12 uh, banks, and we had others participate, was, was a challenge, but there I had some advantages. One is I had previous success. So I was able to fund the operation myself for the first 18 months. Uh, I had, as did some of my founders, uh, a significant enough gravitas and respect that we could speak about something that was broadly perceived to be completely, you know, nuts in, in a way that resonated. In other words, you know, let's not focus on, on just Bitcoin. Let's focus on the power of some of the innovations of the technology and what that could do for us. And I'll tell you, back in 2014, we, you know, we held three big, I don't know, uh, what do I want to call these things? Not, um, you know, meetups, I suppose, of the, of the banks, roundtables, I think we called them at the time. Um, but even the mention of Bitcoin, Caused us some trouble. I, I can probably mention it now. They wouldn't have wanted me to mention it then. BAML has uh, Bank of America has always been one of our big supporters, and they hosted a pretty big event for us early on. Uh, but it was touch and go right up to the last minute as to how much quote Bitcoin content we could have, and them still be I able to host it to <laughs> yeah. from their from their compliance departments. And I used to send out emails, and you know, I'd have to. But I have to take the word Bitcoin and put some asterisks and stuff so it wasn't picked up by compliance at the time. But anyway, so, so our message resonated. Uh, we did some very early, lightweight proof of concepts, which proved some fundamentals about the capability of the technology. And, you know, we also engaged through our architectural working group uh, and some other working groups we had, we brought them in and said, "Look, we don't know, we don't know uh, everything here, and we want to, you know, we want your feedback." Importantly, I have always looked at a problem and thought, or or situation, thought, you know, how can we do things better? How can we do things differently? How can we deploy technologies to take the foundation that exists today and to build something? very different that was a fundamental different approach to the you know libertarian everything's going to change there's not going to be a, a dollar there's not going to be you know this stuff so so I sounded a lot more sane which really wasn't difficult to do at the time be honest <laughs> uh than, than a lot of other folks out there which helped uh, helped us gain um some respect and a following. And then after, you know, the big 12 announced in, interest, interestingly, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan were, were the biggest uh, supporters of my work at that time. And I'm still very grateful to those institutions, but then we had the f- fear of missing out. And so after months and months and months of hell, Uh, after that announcement that came out, our phones were ringing off the hooks and people were were throwing money at us, which was really a fun period. And I left uh, with uh, Todd and and Jesse Edwards at that time because they were like, Rudder, we have to just tell these people we can't take their money. And I said, you know, if I do, you're both fired or something like that. Just (laughs) keep taking it. We'll figure out how to make it work. And hopefully we have for those initial investors and, Certainly, their equity is worth more than it was at the time they invested, which is great right.
0: and I know you guys you know if not directly um, indirectly help craft this blockchain not Bitcoin narrative that has enabled an entirely new form of stakeholder to um, to move into the space and to to detach slightly from um, a lot of the craziness that happens at the other end of the spectrum. and so one of the ways that I, I describe initiatives like, um, Corder is it's kind of Web two point five. It has some of the characteristics um, that you want to see in Web three, but it is is u- it is usable uh, for the world as it is today. And so, at, at what point did you make the decision? Uh, and would you class it as a pivot from going from this idea of kind of procuring and co developing with third party technology vendors to to building the stack that has now become Corder and why were you so keen on an open sourcing it straight away? Because again, that's quite an unusual thing to do in an enterprise context.
1: <laughs> I was not that keen. I had my, you know, Richard and Todd annoy me forever uh, until I, until I capitulated and I'm glad I did uh, because, you know, one of the things I had to deal with early on, Jamie, which drove me nuts is that I had a whole movement within R3. There's a gentleman, Mike Ward, who, who runs product uh, for Toddy and, and has a very big role, important role in the company. And he's one of these guys that always wants to look at things different, differently and as a result always causes uh, tension, especially with me. But I, I think that I've learned over the years that respecting other people's uh, perspectives uh, especially when they're well-researched, is a worthwhile exercise. And his point all along was that we need to buy in from the developer and community. And in addition to scaling globally uh, through our big partners, you know, the Accentures of the world and the like, that um, having having a movement amongst the developers is important and we won't do it yeah unless we're open source. And at the time, you know, Ethereum was publishing, you know, we have 14.6 billion Ethereum developers on the planet, which, you know, obviously caused me some confusion, uh, but I'm exaggerating a little bit. But, but I kept saying, my like, guys, I'm like, guys, it's because Ethereum is, is, is increasing in value. It's all about money. People will follow the money. You know, the developers will come around when they realize that we're a responsible organization with a solid piece of technology that is going to drive solutions across industries and across geographies, they will come. And Ward's, Ward's counter proposal was, yeah, but we want them in early because we can learn from them and, and, and from their commits, from their experience in using the software. So it ended up being a compromise. It was something that, you know, that we talked about uh, for a long time. And did we, get it right. Yeah, I think so. Time will tell. You know, our enterprise solution um, is is is, you know, what we're in business to sell and has some features for high throughput users and, and big customers, including the service level commitment from R3, which I think is very, very important. But you know, if folks don't need that and can build on the open source, we still think it's going to drive um, you know quarter adoption globally
0: so that's how we got there but it wasn't easy yeah I mean again whilst a lot of the momentum I was seeing in, in people I spoke to around the kind of conference circuit was was primarily in in the enterprise setting I know that's what you've kind of proactively gone after but increasingly through our accelerator now we're starting to see startups usually with Kind of enterprise veterans or kind of more senior people that are uh, leaving these institutions um, and you know starting a startup. Um, increasingly, if it's in a regulated industry, uh, you know financial services generally, uh, increasingly insurance. Um, we're seeing that uh, the thing that they're building on is Corda, and so I think I know you've done Corda Calm and this kind of Corda DAP ecosystem is is seeing some good growth. So the strategy definitely looks like it, it, it it's paying off and you, you kind of started at the hard end. And then hopefully this now opens up to that long tail of, of a smaller startup. And so in terms of, if you look at the different approaches that people have taken, the different pathways that you could have taken, the, the I guess, competitor, people would have framed that you have a couple of competitors, whether it's Ripple, the organization, whether it's, the Ethereum Alliance and, and people spinning up Ethereum sidechains. What was it that you think has led to your increasing, I guess, not just market share of those that are in, innovating in this space, but the ability to actually grow the market side?
1: Well, I, I think it's, it's pretty basic. I mean, quarter works and it scales and we have thought about the production you know, experience at scale for very demanding customers from the start. So so from the very start, you know, when it comes to choosing, you know, Kotlin and Java and the various uh, database selections that we made and all were, again, based on this, um, you know, incrementally improving but understanding that the technologies must be uh, – that that we used – you know, needed to be proven uh, and secure and reliable. So I think those, uh, you know, those types of things really helped. But I I think more importantly is that as more and more applications are getting into production, no matter how much time you spend in the lab or on the whiteboard, you know, until you get out there, you, you don't really know what you're going to run into. And to be honest, you know, I I think Corda is is good, and I'll keep getting back to how we much we still need to get much better. But our competition, to be honest, has really not proven to be, uh, you know, to have thought through a lot of these production related issues, which is why you see, you know, uh, you know, brilliant technologies like like Ethereum kind of. Having to go back to the drawing board and and come up with their version 2.0 and solve a lot of the challenges um, that they're facing in the in the real
0: world environment. So a lot of those design choices that you made in the early stages seem to be um, paying dividends. So recently, uh, there was an independent uh, research body that assessed you against your peers as to which could meet the standards of. Federal government and it was highlighted that some of those decisions you made in your design programming language and, and cryptography uh, meant that you were likely uh, one of the only ones that could be adopted at that level so it'd be great to understand a little bit more about that
1: yeah that was a nice endorsement to read about and while I'm not you know extremely close to what I understand that institute uh, makes recommendations as to what the U.S. government can can use, and I think that not only it's does it spill over to to the uh, you know private markets, but I think other governments look uh, at that as well. So, you know, it's it's kind of timely from our perspective because we have some pretty big projects going on with various central banks and governments around the world, and it's also just a really nice endorsement of those early design decisions we made Um, as i spoke to briefly the you know the decisions around java and sql databases and other things that we did was we we tried to use the powers of the new technology but also leverage proven existing technologies that have stood the test of time and i think that that combination and those decisions are paying dividends not just through endorsements like this but through you know the rapid growth of our ecosystem and the number of uh, core apps that are we that we're seeing being built now and and deployed into production
0: so I know you know you guys pride yourself on scalability and performance um, and often directly reference you can speed up processes in in financial services around you know financial agreements both the execution and uh, and I guess it's re- removing this cost of trust but uh, you also speak about the governance component. So obviously um, you can look at it from whether it's a curse or a blessing that a lot of the competing technologies or the organizations around those competing technologies have different kind of governance models about how things are iterated and decided. And I know uh, you know you very candidly uh, mentioned this um, healthy tension from a engineering perspective. Um, as you scale, as you have more voices, as you have different uh, and more pathways, more markets you can go into, how do you, uh, how do you find a balance uh, and keep those tensions healthy rather than unhealthy?
1: Uh, that is a very uh, good and timely question. I mean, I, I think that uh, tension within an organization that's based on mutual respect can really create great roots I've run a lot of uh, organizations and I have a certain style. Um, and I'm sure if you talk to some of my EXCO members, drive them crazy. But right now, um, I am very aggressively challenging all of my direct reports to think about what we need to do differently to be ready for a. Post COVID nineteen environment, and you know what does that mean? And so, I I create the intention because I the tension because I never stop thinking about you know the weaknesses we have in various parts of our organization, and I will never stop thinking about that. So right now, when I look at COVID nineteen and where we come out of this thing, I think that if you look back. To whether it's, and I've been through a lot of crises maybe because I've been around so long, but I've actually been reading a bit more about the Great Depression and the Spanish flu and and the roaring 20s and, and the like. And there is no doubt that on the back ends of these very, very difficult periods, uh, there's a willingness to try new things and to, you know, uh, change the way you do business and what that's resulted in the past is a real acceleration of adoption of different types of technologies. You know, it was in the twenties, it was everything from, you know, uh, automobiles and, and, and washing machines. And, you know, after, uh, 2008 and nine, there's been a lot of digital banking innovations and also automations and back office services. So the question is, you know, what is it going to look like for us? And I think, you know, The research project is over, guys. We need to be able to to deliver with our partners and supporting our partners, potentially much more actively than we have in the past, solutions that create nearly immediate financial and or social benefit to our customers. So what does that mean? That means that maybe we need to look at how we can more rapidly deploy to a cloud environment a lot of our heavyweight institutional customers you know still still like to manage their own it suite but i believe that i believe that will change so how do we deploy more quickly you know applications that can make a difference and if we start there and then work back what could we be doing differently also how do we support our ecosystem there's hundreds of very qualified quarter developers out there that, you know, are, are under threat in some way, not just our entrepreneurial startups, but also other organizations that are software development houses and the like. And, and you know, we wanna make sure that we help them remain healthy. So can we both accelerate our build? Can we, uh, you know, rise to meet these challenges and, and potentially outsource some more of our development to help our ecosystem survive as well. And it's easy for me to say that as a CEO, it's, it's harder for my folks to uh, be able to execute against that. I think that's, what's going to make us different or special and, and, and it's going to make us succeed. So I admit that I create a lot of attention and I'm, I'm very, very uh, direct uh, at times, but I, I do I do listen you know, I don't think I'm right all the time. I so actually, you know, but I do think
0: that by pushing my team, we get to the right place, you know, more often than not. Um, I mean, it's always good to speak to entrepreneurs at moments like this in history, because um, I, I'm, I suffer from the same curse. We're eternal optimists and we always see opportunity um, even in the crisis. And, you know, similarly, I, I if you look at, when Bitcoin happened, you could see Bitcoin as a, a direct response to one of the last major financial crashes. So I'm also very excited about innovations that are going to be coming off the ramps, perhaps that already exist, but that could be set, accelerated. And so that's quite a nice segue, actually. I think it was last time I was in Asia, I was in Singapore. I met with some of your team out, out to the Singapore office for a for coffee. And they were talking about uh your focus around security tokens so i know you're not anti-tokenization or the digitization of of assets and of course there's this whole groundswell now around um government-backed digital currencies and assets catalyzed by libra what's your perspective on on all that so so i think tokens are very powerful and we
1: are Definitely not anti-token, nor have I ever been anti-token. I'm, I believe in delivering value for money to customers. That's how businesses are sustained. So getting rich, quick schemes on issuing tokens with nonsense or no business plan, I, I find, you know, ridiculously objectionable. So I wanna, I wanna make sure that you know you understand Jamie how how I differentiate now using tokens from micropayments or using smart money. I did a I did a piece recently where I you know I, I read about Trump's plan to get you know, money in Americans' hands to drive the economy. So we're going to write $1,200 checks, you know, and it makes the hair stand up in the back of my neck because I remember when Bush did that, and that was kind of part of my paper. You know, we have the power now to use money in a way for social good to drive behavior and outcomes that benefit everyone. So let's talk about a couple examples really quickly. So what my piece was about is that if you really wanted to to, to drive the economy, especially in the crisis we're having, where you have such a, 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 a rapid and such a dramatic impact. What you want to do is you want to get people in the money's, uh, sorry, money into people's hands very quickly, and you want them to spend it very quickly. So it's very easy to have programmable money that expires in X number of days. It's easy to build a type of money that can only be spent on certain things. The economy is so bad right now. You know, even if they're going to the liquor store, you'd probably permit that. Who cares? It's going to drive, you know, drive the economy a little bit. But if we think about other social cases, you know, and welfare and the like, you could have your welfare money, you know, make sure it goes to 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 food and to to you know, support housing, housing and the like. In that case, you don't want it going to 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 alcohol for sure in cases of, of, you know, families that have been separated or divorced, you know, making sure that the support payments go to, to the kids in the way that they're supposed to, to support schooling and all this sort of stuff. This is all very much in our power. It, it exists. The technology for this exists today. So I really believe, and, and this actually might be led by China and, and, and then ultimately driven by Western countries that are, uh, again, have FOMO that are worried about, uh, I'm missing out, but you know I moved to Europe. I haven't seen a check for years. Americans still write them, but you know we we kind of tap everywhere, as you know, Jamie, for everything we go, everything we do. So, you know, having uh, taking the next step towards central bank digital currencies and and, and and programmable money, I think is just a no-brainer, and we're going to see that. And then the other thing I'll say is that I don't, especially given my background, because we've talked about this, I don't underestimate. Um, how big a step this is in some ways. So when you think about central bank digital currencies that are, that are retail oriented, like the Riksbank Bank in Sweden is, is considering, there's all sorts of monetary policy uh, issues that you really have to think through. Um, that being said, to have programmable money for specific cases, or to have uh, central bank digital currencies for uh, institutional commerce so that we can achieve atomic settlement, on Corda and on
0: other blockchains um, makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. David, thanks for your time. It's been hugely insightful. Please do keep doing everything that you do to to grow the pie for everybody. I think you're bringing in an entirely new class of stakeholder into the space, which everybody benefits from, Uh, and hopefully we get to have that dinner in London when all of this craziness dies down a bit
1: yeah that sounds uh that sounds great i really enjoyed this jamie and you know we could have probably talked for three or four hours about the journey so i'd love to catch up with you again sometime and best of luck to you during these difficult times for you and your family and everybody who's listening out there
0: awesome thanks for your time
1: david good luck yes sir take care bye now
0: if you enjoyed today's podcast please make sure you subscribe rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.